Welcome Love to the show, everyone. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this sunny, at least in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, we are doing Akindoro's Life and Art today, and here with me is my dad, the inimitable Dana C. Chandler, Jr. Hello, Dad. We're back. We're back. Yes, we are. We are back. We are back. We tried to do that a little better, but, you know, the platform wasn't cooperating with us. Uh, This is the show where celebrated activist artist Dana C. Chandler returns to the airwaves to discuss his art as well as three things you don't discuss in polite company, money, politics, and religion. Um, Today's show is Past is Prologue, the real story behind the demise of AMARC. Uh, The program was started in 1974 by Professor Chandler, and he will uh, take it from here and start with briefly that when was the show, the um, program started, what, is it, what was the full name of the program, and why did you start, launch the program? Well, I started the program in my mind about the very first year that I was at Northeastern University in the space that they uh, allowed me to have, which was about 8,000 square feet. So I had one of the largest studio spaces in the city of Boston, if not the largest. And uh, but uh, and then I was also on a floor that had about 22,000 square feet extra of space, but there was nobody there. There was nobody on that floor at all. And it just seemed to me that there was a way to uh, talk Northeastern into allowing more African-American artists to have space on that floor, since it wasn't being used anyway, I should be working on that, developing that kind of program. And so that's exactly what I did. Um, I started off, I think I was one of the first programs that called itself the African American Master Artist in Residency Program rather than the Afro American. Afro is a word I have never liked because I don't think that it, it talks about your hair, but it doesn't really talk about your culture. So for me, it was the African-American Master's in Residency Program, and it was that from 1978 through today. And, and that's a great segue, Dad. Um, what, what is happening today, and what is the history behind what's happening today? Well, I think that, President President Kennedy, and I need to tell you that I've, I've been having some health issues, and so sometimes my my voice will be a bit blurry, and the words will not be pronounced correctly. But if, according to my doctor, I'm alive and well, and, and God seems to agree, so I'm thrilled. And in any case, uh, to get back to this whole business, um, it seems, at least to me, that... Kenneth G. Ryder, who was the president, who became the president of uh, Northeastern University around the same time as I started AMOP, really liked the program, really liked what the program was going to be about and all that. So he was all for it. But very often when the president of an institution likes a program, everybody pretends they go along with the program. But what happens internally is in terms of what the program needs, 
everybody suddenly hurry up and go slow to keep the uh, program from doing well. But since at that particular juncture I was not being paid by the university, I could go forth and do things that one who is being paid cannot do. So I could go and develop my own people in the in the press that would love AMOP. I could go and uh, have programs going on that the university might not quite approve of. And uh, so for a good long time, before the program actually got started in 1978, I had opened up the doors of, of my studio space, and, and you, I'm sure you remember this time. Mm-hmm, I do. I just brought, I said to people, people would come to me and they would say, well, what is the process for using your space? I said, you show up. <laughs> yeah. And they would all get this look on their face like, nobody does that. It can't be done that way. I said, why don't you show up and find out? And so they would come and they would do all the kind of community things that one would think of. We had graduations. We had graduation parties. And this was mm-hmm. all for people of color uh, in the community. So we had Hispanic folk coming through there and, and doing graduate kinds of things. We had Jamaican folk coming there. We had everybody who made up our, our community of color coming through there and doing one event after another all the way up and through the beginning of the actual program, which started in November of 1978, uh, because that's what I had promised the community and had promised myself and had promised the president of that university I would do, which was open up the doors of my studio space for any kind of community event that made sense in terms of the human and civil rights struggle, which, of course, was... Uh, ongoing like crazy at that time. And, and what were, what were some of the uh, challenges to your maintaining the program or maintaining just the activities that you were doing initially, and then the program? Who was pro the program? Who was uh, con the program? Against the program? And what were the kinds of things they were doing to prevent you to from achieving the objectives you'd set up for the the, the, the complex? Well, again, the, the most um, uh, pro person in the administration of the university was the president of the university himself. So therefore, all the people who were con the program would pretend that they were pro the program mm-hmm. because the president of the university was pro the program. So I would uh, run into all kinds of suddenly uh, important technical kinds of challenges for the program, like should there be a police officer for for the events the community was, was having to make sure that it was safe. And for the longest time, there was no police officer because they hadn't set that up yet. See, Northeastern had a police force, but they didn't have a, a highly professional police force at that time. Mm-hmm. So we were the impetus. <laughs> we were the impetus for Northeastern University developing mm-hmm. a highly professional police force. You know, how do we control these black people? Cause them to want to have the kind of police force that control would control these black people. We were never, ever, ever, ever a challenge for the university. All of our events uh, went off very, very well. Uh, were enjoyed immensely by the community. Um, uh, you know, African-American people and other people behaved as they would normally behave when they were uh, involved on a, on a campus 
or in the community or wherever they might be, and they were putting on events. There was never any challenges, never any crazy people coming through there, never any trouble of any kind. But the university, of course, couldn't believe that black people could act so properly. I think that both Kenneth Ryder and myself and, of course, most of the people in the community knew that we could and would and did. But there were always these European-American white guys who worried about whether these, having all these black people traipsing in and around the community would be a challenge for the university. There was never in the entire, and never has been in the entire history of AMOP any kind of problem. And I, I just want to make that very clear because, of course, today the university is saying that dangerous things are happening there, that we're using materials that are flammable and they're worried about the safety. And it's interesting to me because, of course, they haven't been worried about the safety of anybody for the last 40 years. Well, let me, well let, let, me, let me break in here and ask a question about exactly what uh, artists and the program was doing. What kinds of um, activities did you have? Talk a little bit about the artist studios and the open studios, the gallery, the, and, and some of the events that you had that, from, um, and, and continue to have. In my from program. the beginning of the program, there has been what I called an open studio uh, complex open in the, the uh, sense that if you allowed us to know you wanted to come and you wanted to bring, for instance, uh, students from one school or another, and it wasn't limited to African-American uh, schools, it was all the schools or any schools who wanted to come and host some kind of events for children at AMOP could do so. So as you, as you show in terms of what you've put up on the website, you can see all kinds of kids, you know, Asian kids, Native American kids, Hispanic kids, black kids, and tons and tons of white kids uh, coming to the studio face, uh, studio, um, there goes that thing that's happening these days, coming to the studio space and visit, visiting artist studios. What we had, for instance, at the Museum of Fine Arts did not have is that we had highly professional, highly trained, uh, highly exhibited African-American artists who were not dead. Our artists were alive. So you could actually come there and talk to a live artist who just happened to be African-American. And when we had exhibitions, and we had literally hundreds of exhibitions of everybody, not just African-American artists, just everybody, um, and, they, and there were openings, of course, I think there were probably 10 to 12 openings a month of various kinds of shows or events or whatever was going on in the, uh, that the community wanted to involve itself in. You get to, to talk to the performers. You get to talk to people who were, were doing the ex actual exhibitions. You got to talk to the artists. It was a very um, um, what's the word, a visitor-intensive kind of program. And you got to talk to these people as though they were your next door neighbors. Okay. Um, Extremely what, popular place. And and what other types of events? Because the, the it was called the African American Master Artist in Residency Program Visual and Performing Arts Complex. What kind of just briefly? Because we've got you know like seventeen and a half minutes. Um, what kind of performers would be at this? 
at the complex? We eventually had the new African company, I believe that's what it was called, Jim and uh, and uh, Linda Spruill, their theater company, come there and perform plays. We had dance companies come and dance. We had um, all kinds of art exhibitions, as you, as you can imagine. Not just professional artists, but sometimes community artists, and sometimes we, we once hosted an international children's art show. Uh, we had different cultures showing out, uh, showing up and, and doing shows. So we would have um, um, people who were, oh, what is that, who were, um, you're going to have to help me with this one. My, my brain is going sideways. Um, I, I'm not clear about what you're trying to say. I know that it was a multinational program that people were coming from all over the world, and I remember things like the um, a delegation from a government delegation from China, for example, coming. So the State Department was interested in having people come to the program. There were people from every uh, walk of life and every profession uh, and, and pursuit that came to that program. And um, that was from the beginning. And you also had uh, the television media, and the local media seemed to uh, really support the place. Uh, support the program. So and we, we led into a lot of uh, television shows. They would come for the atmosphere that the artwork provided, and, and we were like the intro into whatever that particular program happened to, to be. Um, and then, of course, the idea of making sure that children's had, children who came had the opportunity to actually do artwork themselves in the, on the premises. So you 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 remember how we uh, mm-hmm. like at least once a week we would roll out these long trailers of paper and bring on all the poster and, and watercolors and the kids would sit on the floor and just do whatever they wanted to do in the way of expressing themselves as artists. Right. It was as good I think mentally for the teachers as it was for the students. Also. We never had any trouble with any of the children that I can Okay, remember. good. You know, the children were wonderful. They were better, in fact, I thought, than the teachers and their supervisors who came there in terms of being very careful of all the art that was on the walls and all the art in studios. The other thing that was amazing is most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, people did not come in there and steal anything. And, and let me... And, and let me t- let, let's talk about a little bit about what the artists, what the um, what the artists are being accused of now. Given all of the the positive activities that happened over forty almost forty years, um, what is the university now saying about the program? What has when did you start to uh, experience some of the problems that now have manifested themselves in the potential demise of the program? Oh, from the very beginning. (laughs) I mean, the university was sometimes quite hilarious in terms of what it is they said was going on. They would say that, you know, they found the door unlocked or, you know, there there wasn't a public safety was an issue. They thought some terrible things will happen to people who came into the place. They thought that people's cars would get broken into. It never happened. They thought that uh, stuff would be stolen from people's cars. Never happened at least not around AMOP, might have gotten stolen from other parts of the university. 
like right on Huntington Avenue, right across from the Museum of Fine Arts. But nothing like that ever happened that when uh, cars were parked near the black community. So, you know, they were always trying to use the black community for to be able to, to do some of the things that they wanted to do, whatever they might have been, and that they thought might involve uh, what's going on with city um, with zoning and all of that stuff. We never had any of those kind of problems. We never had those issues unless the white people at the university brought it up. Okay, but what about the the what about things like the supposed code violations, and what about funding and uh, other types of community support? When did that start to uh, diminish? When when did that start to decline? It started really to decline when uh, Kenneth G. Ryder was no longer president. When um, Jack, Jack Curry became president, we started to have some some issues around budget. But that was also at the time where the university was saying, we don't have sufficient money to run all the programs we used to run. We are. What was really happening was the university was going into this extremely heavy uh, program of building new buildings and going through all kinds of machinations so they could get zoning to approve them building all of these, uh, what they would consider to be contemporary and technologically grounded buildings uh, such as those that you see today. Because at the time that we first started, there were none of those buildings. Right. So when the university moved to modernize the the, uh, the uh, plant, the Northeast University plant, that's when we started to have some challenges. Suddenly there was no money for programs, and, of course, we never really got any serious money from the university. What we got was upkeep money uh, from the university and some some materials money. And we didn't really get it, of course, because we we, we, we couldn't just go out and purchase stuff. Everything was done through the bursar's office, through um, uh, vouchers. Uh, What's the, the other thing they... Purchase orders and vouchers. That's what it was. Purchase orders and vouchers. So when there came the time when people started to accuse me of stealing the funds, you know, it it, it really wasn't anything that became severe because once I mentioned to, to the world, look, I have no access to any money whatsoever. Everything is done through purchase orders. So if somebody signed off on it, you can't blame me. Right. Signed off on it. You okay. Know? And I have no access to any of the money, and that so that kind of quieted, quieted that challenge quickly. But that didn't mean that they weren't throwing rumors out into the community that Dana Chandler was was um, stealing from the budget and so on and so forth. And that was as much because there were one or two artists who wanted to run the program and thought themselves and thought they could run it better. And so that they were just going around saying some things were happening in their month that just weren't happening at all. And what so so today, what the university is accusing the the uh, artists of uh, code violations like false walls and uh, they uh, that's because they never built the walls that they promised to build. Okay, and, and but they also are saying that they're living there on the premises and they have. Uh, basically rewired and, and, and replumbed the space 
for residential use and some other things. When's the first time they made those allegations? <laughs> when we opened the doors, is they mount? <laughs> okay, so. By so laughing. They- because they're using the same crap that they have always used, you know. They would so say for 40 the, years they've been saying the same thing. Same thing. And, you know, they're always saying that they're worried about code violation, but they can never find any code violations. Now, they can find some technical challenges, like um, um, sometimes some of the artists would plug things into the wall that they thought shouldn't be plugged into the wall, although not, nothing ever happened which I always find very interesting, the accusation for all the things that we're supposed to have done, you know, never happened, never never, never showed up or any of that kind of stuff. Did artists make their studio spaces as comfortable as they possibly could? Yes. Were there beds there? Yes. The same as there are beds in every artist studio you ever go into. Does that include the studios you think of the white artists that are in uh, spaces adjacent to the program where AIM, uh, where AMARC is located? Yeah, the white artists are on the second floor. Okay. Bumpers on the third and fourth floor. The okay. first floor is used for shipping. At least it was when I was there. People have to bear in mind that I haven't been there as an artist in residence for the last 15 years. I left in 2004. Okay, and so do you do you think the kinds of code violations which are uh, identified in an article that I have linked to the, the description of the show um, uh, are those prog- are those types of uh, code violations a danger just to the immediate space, or would you say that they would be uh, an apparent danger to others who are in the building, according to the university? According to the university, according to actual fact, no such thing. Okay, and I guess I'm getting to the I, the concept of if you have code violations, one of the things that uh, Michael Armini, the uh, SVP of communications, cited was the possibility of fire that would kill everybody in the building. He, <laughs> he cited yeah, he did, that. And, and did one of use that. Are, and when I yes. read that, I said, here go the white folks again. Okay. so All that so, was and is is a device to get the African-American people out of that building so the white people can go in there and use the building to whatever purpose that they want to use it to. And they seem to be forgetting that the way they got proper zoning for the place was be between an agreement between the program and the Jamaica Plain um, um, Arts Council that there would be arts programs going on in the building. And it was for those reasons that they were allowed to purchase the building. Okay. I don't know that those that agreement has ever ended. Okay, but that the white folks in the plant department of the university have always wanted to take that space back for whatever uses they have in mind. And and why do you think the the, the local press is not providing a, a lot of coverage of this? Because um... the local press is white. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's. That's, I guess that's a quick answer. And, and the local press always goes along to whatever university administration says is going on. Okay. When it, when, it, when it comes to black people and space, space is finite in Boston, primarily because Boston is one of the, the richest real estate uh, cities in the country right about now. And space is finite. And they're not building studio space 
are using studio space for artists of any kind, black or white. You don't see that. You know, there are okay. some things that they're starting to do, I've heard. I don't know because I'm not in Boston anymore. There's some things that they're starting to do, but we have a great deal of space that could be used for any kind of, of university, whatever. You know, okay. right. any kind of white university, whatever. They, and they never mention that fact that, you know, what they're going to do, what they want to do is to take these spaces to use them for, for white people's use. They don't and, want black people in these buildings. And that's why you're thinking the the press and the some of the, even the community organizations are not fighting for AMARC to stay open. Oh, you know, it's just those black people over there. Besides, they've been there for 30-plus years or blah, blah, blah. And maybe it's time for a changeover. Maybe we need to be using this, this space for something else that relates more to education, maybe. Right. So as we as we move toward the close of the program, can you take a minute to, to talk about what you uh, believe should be happening rather than what is? Well, first of all, the university has already may have managed to acquire tons of space in the city of Boston in terms of new and old buildings that they have built or renovated. They already have all the space that they actually need. But we have something on the order of uh, probably 25 to 29,000 square feet that we have been using for the last 40 years for our various programs for the community. Why they now want to use that space, why they can't keep to their agreement has to, to go to their indifference about anything that has to do with African American anything. They are not interested in that. You know, they want. But they would argue. But they would argue that they're diverse and they're pursuing diversity. And look at our website and all of the diverse pictures we have on the website about you know diversity. Diversity. Black oh, people are there too. That's what they do with, with black people. In anything that happens in the United States, they will, they have all kinds of wonderful pictures of us black folks doing this, that, and the other on on their university campuses, in their office spaces, wherever black people uh, are wanted to be seen so that they can take advantage of all of the government monies that are available for integrated programs. But as far as black people actually getting the money to use in the way that black people want to use the money, that ain't happening in America, especially not now, not with Donald Trump in office, very busy making uh, making America white again. So, you know. And, and you, you know, think the university is following along with that strategy of, of, of divesting African Americans of whatever we haven't been t- had stolen during the Great Recession? They're doing what they always do when it comes to black people. You know, utilize them any way that they possibly can so that they follow various parts of the laws that they've created to, to convince people they are, they are comfortable with African-American people while taking whatever they can from African-American people. Well, and, and, and on that note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple of statements and then close the show. Um, nothing that we're saying here is not documentable. I have 33 pages of documents uh, related to the AMR program in my possession uh, that, that I could send to any member of the press that's interested. I also know that there are statistics that show uh, the kinds of things that happened to us during the Great Recession and that show the kinds of things that happened to us in terms of asset uh, loss 
over the history of this country. So there's nothing I'm saying that's not a well, well-known fact. Um, but we, we thank you very much for joining the show today. Please note that my father's uh, my father's seminal piece, uh, Fred Hampton Store, is traveling in Soul of a Nation, the uh, art in the Black Power Movement show that will next be at the Brooklyn Museum. And if you want to learn more about uh, Professor Chandler and his work, please visit the website, Getting. Now, getalivinglegend.com, that again is getalivinglegend.com. If you go to the show's main page, you will see that information on both the exhibition and the website there for your use and review, as well as links to articles that, a blog post that I wrote about AMARP's demise and an article about the uh, Demise of Amarp, written by Greg Cook of Wonderland. He did a wonderful job on that article. You really should read it and share it. And do contact us if you have an interest in uh, booking Professor Chandler or uh, for a show or to speak or for more information on the program itself, uh, Amarp, or on uh, Professor Chandler's life. The contact information is on the website. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dadness, for joining us. We are glad to be back, and we will be back uh, next show. We're not sure when it'll be, but soon. Goodbye, everybody. Okay. All right, then. We did that. It's done. All right.